And if any of these men thinks he has grounds for such confidence, I can assure him I have more. I was born from the people of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, in fact, a full-blooded Jew. As far as keeping the law is concerned, I was a Pharisee. And you can judge by my enthusiasm for the Jewish faith by my active persecution of the church. As far as the law's righteousness is concerned, I don't think anyone could have found fault with me. Yet every advantage that I had gained I considered lost for Christ's sake. Yes, and I look upon everything as loss compared with the overwhelming gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I did in actual fact suffer the loss of everything. But I considered it useless rubbish compared with being able to win Christ. For now my place is in him, and I am not dependent upon any of the self-achieved righteousness of the law. God has given me that genuine righteousness which comes from faith in Christ. How changed are my ambitions, which comes, uh, now I long to know Christ, and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I may perhaps attain as he did, the resurrection from the dead. Yet, my brothers, I do not consider myself to have arrived spiritually, nor do I consider myself already perfect, but I keep going on, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ Jesus grasped me. My brothers, I do not consider myself to have fully grasped it even now, but I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal, my reward, the honor of my high calling by God in Christ Jesus. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. We want to thank the choir for singing for us the anthem which uh, reminds us all of the blessings which we do enjoy in our land and of the sacrifice which has been made that we might have this freedom. We are indeed grateful for it. But the sacraments and what we have to do today teaches us of something that's far greater than simply national freedom. It teaches us what it means to know Christ. We have been studying at our Wednesday evening Bible study down at the manse, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. 
it's important for you to remember something of the circumstances in which that letter was written. Paul had gone as a result of a vision that had come to him in the midst of the night, come over into Macedonia and help us, into Greece. He had gone to European soil, and by this the Holy Spirit is going to take the gospel in a manner that causes it to reach all the way to us, even here in Montreat and in western North Carolina, because it takes a whole different course after that. And we saw something of that last Sunday. We saw that when Paul went into Philippi, he went to a place where prayer was wont to be made. And there he saw some God-fearers who understood the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of Messiah. And he was able to explain to them more fully the way of salvation. And the key phrase there is that the Lord opened her heart, that is the heart of Lydia, the first convert on European soil. And this woman becomes a believer. She and her entire household, she was a person of considerable wealth, and she offered the hospitality of her house to these itinerant preachers of the gospel so that they might have lodging and so that they might have a base to work from. And then we saw the next convert. We saw a poor woman who was, who was possessed of what is called an oracular spirit, uh, something that spoke through her, like a ventriloquist. She had the gift of second sight, but was evidently a demon-possessed person, and she followed after Paul and Silas, who were both Roman citizens, and called out, These are servants of the Most High God who have come to declare unto us the way of salvation. And that's a great message. But what she was doing was annoying and detracting, because of what was going on, and Paul began to sense that there was something else in back of this, that it was even an evil power. And so rounding upon that evil spirit, after having been greatly annoyed by this, he cast out the evil spirit, and this poor woman had the deep emotional and psychological need of her heart met as she was cleansed of that bad spirit and Christ came into her heart. And then, because this had disrupted the money which her owners received by her fortune-telling spirit, they went to the magistrates and demanded that Paul and Silas be arrested because they said they are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us Romans to observe. And they had Paul and Silas brutally beaten and taken and put inside an inner prison, and their feet and their legs were put in stocks. And you remember how that they were singing praises to God at midnight, and an earthquake came and shook the foundations of that jail and its walls and its doors, and how these prisoners were freed. And the jailers, sensing that he was responsible for their having been kept, 
drew a sword and was about to kill himself because it was the death penalty if any of his prisoners escaped, heard the voice of the gospel, which was good news, and it said, Do thyself no harm. This is a message which we need to call out to people who are caught up in the madness of despair today. In an America with all of its affluence, where the highest cause of death among college students is suicide. Do thyself no harm, said Paul. We've got some good news for you. And this man came trembling and fell at Paul and Silas' feet and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because he had heard them talking about salvation. And uh, he had some idea that they were representatives of God. And they explained to him more fully the way of salvation. And he and his household were baptized in that same night. And he washed Paul's stripes. We talked about this down at the manse, and you're welcome to attend there on 7.30 on Wednesday evening. How did, if you are converted, go back and make right the things you have done that are wrong? and give some proof of your conversion. This man did a terrible thing when he had beaten Paul and Silas, and he washed their bloody stripes, and he gave proof of the fact that God had done something inside of him. The terrible thing today is that so often when people claim conversion or join the church, no one notices any difference in their conduct or their attitude or anything about them. If you owe debts, pay them, or make arrangements to pay them. If you've hurt someone, go and try to make up for it. Give proof of the fact that Jesus is Lord. And this is what uh, real New Testament Christianity is all about. And so this is what happens here. Now then, the years passed by, and Paul had been imprisoned, either in Caesarea or in Rome. Most scholars believe it was in Rome. And someone had passed the hat and taken up a collection, and they had sent it to their old pastor, who was away in Rome in jail, manacled to a Roman soldier. I've always envied that Roman soldier. I would love to have been chained to Paul. My, what you could have talked about when you got off guard duty and you went home. What you could have told your wife and your children about this amazing person who was not a rapist or a revolutionary or a thief, but a man who had left in his trail people who came to know the living God through faith in Jesus Christ and whose lives were transformed by the beauty of the Lord Jesus and his healing and atoning power. Well, Paul's in jail, and he receives word from his old church in Philippi through Epaphroditus, a person who belonged to that church, and they bring him some money. And he writes them a thank you letter, and that thank you letter has become our epistle to the Philippians, which is also a word from the Holy Spirit to us. Now we come today to Holy Communion. And what is communion going to demonstrate to us? It's going to demonstrate the fact that when we come here and pick up these elements, 
We want to be able to earnestly say that we have given as much of ourselves as we know how to give to as much of Jesus as he understood, as we understand. What this means is that he gave his all for us. And we identify ourselves with him. When we take up the broken body, the little bit of bread, this is my body. Never forget that. This is my body broken. And love is a verb. God has done something. The Philippian jailer did something. He washed the wounds of those whom he had injured. And God has done something for us. He is not going to leave us in our sins. And when we identify ourselves with Christ, we are saying we are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are taking up our lot with him. Now Paul could look back upon a time when he was proud of his nationality, when he was a Hebrew born and bred, a meticulous keeper of the law, one who hated the thought that Jesus should claim to be the Messiah. He hated it so much that this zealot Pharisee went to strange cities persecuting those who were believers in Jesus, taking women and children and putting them into prison. But God would not leave him alone. With all of his pharisaical zeal, with all of his meticulous keeping of the law, his heart was vacant and empty and frustrated. And even when he took that frustration out by beating the Christians and imprisoning them and allowing the coats to be laid at his feet when Stephen was stoned to death, God worked in his heart. I think he never got the picture of Stephen out of his mind when the stones came raining down upon Stephen and pelted out of him his life's blood. Stephen's face shone like the face of an angel. And he said words that remind us of Jesus. Father, forgive them. He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And Saul the Pharisee never forgot that. He couldn't forget it. And I often like to think, as Sir Thomas More said to his accusers who condemned him to death, he said, you have condemned me to death. But just as St. Paul's accusers, just as St. Stephen's accusers condemned him to death, among whom was Paul, and now today in heaven, Paul and Stephen are both friends. So it is my hope that one day we shall meet again in heaven. And we won't be enemies, but we will be friends. That's forgiveness. But whatever things were gained to me, says Paul, those I counted loss for Christ. And he did. He saw that that righteousness which he had thought, sought through his zealousness was availing of nothing. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now that's the key words, knowing Christ. 
to know him in an intimate way as my Lord, the one who calls the shots, the one who is the deciding factor in decisions which I make, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then our text, that I may know him. This was the driving passion of his life, that I may know him. That is, to know Christ. I remember as a young boy seeing a film called Magnificent Obsession about a strange Dr. Hudson and his secret journal and of how he did good things to help people in life and kept a coded diary. And that was his magnificent obsession. Now I can remember one time in my own experience when I was terribly ill and in the hospital and I had the nurse come in one day with some enormously expensive arrangement of flowers and on the tag with the flowers there was a, a little card that said I'm praying for you there'll be better days God bless you John Neiman and I thought I don't know any John Neiman and the days went by and I did not get well and then I got books and cards and fruit and other expensive flowers and each time there would be a verse of scripture and a word of cheer and John Neiman and I had three nurses around the clock and I would wonder in the suffering through the night who is John Neiman I never heard of John Neiman and then one day the nurse said there is a man at the door and he wants to speak with you just a minute I was in great pain and she told him that he could not stay but just a few minutes. She said his name is John Neiman. And I said, I'd like very much if you would let him come in. And I was so weak I could barely speak. He came in and sat by my bed and patted my hand. And he said, I had the same operation that you've gone through. And I didn't think I would ever be well again. But I'm well. And God made me well. And he wanted me to come and to, to tell you to cheer up. There'll be better days. There'll be better days. That's all he said. And I think a little prayer and he slipped out the door. I never saw that man to my knowledge again. Then I picked up the Asheville newspaper one morning and I opened the front page. And on the front page there was a picture of a huge Cadillac automobile and, an, and a train that had crashed into it. And it said, Asheville industrialist John Neiman is dead in an automobile uh, crash with a train. I thought I never even wrote that man a thank you note. And I, I went to the funeral. I saw the time and I got it mixed up and got there 30 minutes early. And I, I was sitting in standing in front of the church waiting for people to come. And there was another man standing there. Uh, uh, he saw me and recognized me and came over and spoke to me. He was a young boy and a uh, young man in his 20s. 
And he said, I didn't know you knew Mr. Neiman. And I said, well, I didn't know him very well, but I was very sick. And he sent me cards, and he encouraged me. And I never even thanked him for it, and I felt that I ought to come to this service. And he said, well, you know, that's strange. He said, I'm here because I got out of a mental hospital and no one would give me a job. And he said, I met a man who saw me one day at a riding stable. And he said, you like horses, don't you? And he said, I told him that that's about all I knew. And he said, well, we need to put in a stable around here so people can ride. He said, why don't you put one in? He said, I told him I didn't have any money. I'd been in a state mental hospital. And he said, suppose I put up the money. Would you be willing to manage it? And then if you can handle it, you can buy out the stable. And he said, I don't know what would have happened to me if it hadn't been for Mr. Neiman. And there was an old Negro who was standing nearby a black man whose hair was cottony white, and he came over where we were, and he said, I heard you gentlemen talking. And he said, our church burned down all the way to the ground. And he said, I saw this big Cadillac come up, and a man said to me, are you going to rebuild your church? And I told him we didn't have any insurance and we didn't have any money. He said, do you have some people who can work? And he said, I said, yes, sir. And he said, there'll be some skilled people here to lay a foundation and we'll get your church built back again. And he said, I'm here today for that reason. And then other people began to come and the service was over. And I thought about his magnificent obsession and about how people had been helped because Christ had evidently touched his life and he wanted to touch other lives too. And the interesting thing was that none of us knew each other except that we had the one thing in common, we'd been helped by him. Well, his ambitions had been changed somewhere along life. I'm sure he could have wasted his money in other ways, but he wanted to spend it in some way to show love. Well, Paul's ambitions were drastically changed from being a zealous Pharisee to being one who was in Christ. And what does he say about it? He says, now I want to know him, that is Christ, in the power of his resurrection, the living Christ. Does he really live in your life? I wish I had time to cite this book in its entirety, parts of it to you. This is Borden of Yale. You can buy it in almost any Christian bookstore. And it's an extraordinary story of the man who was the inheritor of the Borden fortune. He died in Cairo, Egypt, on his way to China to be a missionary to the Muslims uh, that were in China. And he stopped in Cairo to be trained. But he got spinal meningitis and he died. His will was very extraordinary, just in his 20s. And this was about 1910. It is an extraordinary document. This is Charlie Erdman of Princeton talking about his will. Not only in view of the actual bequest which it provides, but also because of the spirit it manifests of loyalty to Christ and devotion to the work of the world. It is in itself a missionary appeal. 
The largest provision is for the China Inland Mission, in connection with which the donor had expected to serve and on whose counsel he had a place. For the work of this mission, he bequeathed the sum of $250,000 back then. And with unique sympathy and thoughtfulness for one so young, he added, quote, I suggest that $100,000 of this amount be invested and that the income thereof be used to support and maintain missionaries and other workers connected with the mission who through age and infirmity have become incapacitated for active service in the mission field at home and are at home and who, who are in need of aid. The sum of $100,000 was less to, left to the National Bible Institute of New York. $100,000 was left to the Moody Bible Institute of Chicago. $50,000 to the Chicago Avenue Church. $50,000 was given to Princeton Seminary to the Board of Foreign Missions of the Presbyterian Church USA and to the Board of Foreign Missions of the Presbyterian Church U.S., to the Board of Foreign Missions of the United Presbyterian Church, to the Chicago Hebrew Mission, $25,000 each to the Nile Mission Press, the American Bible Society, the Chicago Tract Society. Now, why is he doing this? Listen to a stipulation in his will. He therefore requested that the money should be used in the support only of such men as held absolutely to the deity of Christ and to his atoning death for sinners. It is further my desire, runs the will, that the said bequest here and after made be used and disposed of in accordance with the following recommendations by me, that each of the bequests be used for and in connection with missionaries and teachers who are sound in the faith and believe the fundamentals of the divine inspiration of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, including the deity of Jesus Christ, and the doctrine of the atonement through the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on. That's what the Lord's Supper tells us. He wanted others to know that salvation comes through that. The fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings come when we go. Here is a part of a letter that I read here on the day that we held the service for Gay Curry, Uncle Ed Curry's wife. It was written by a man by the name of Uncle Jack Benson, who himself was killed by communist bandits only a year later. How much all of you love the Curries and how close the tendrils of your heart are knit to theirs. At Gay's request, I am sending you the tidings of the home going this morning of their precious baby, John Randolph. I am sure that you will be reaching up with your prayers of intercession unto the throne of grace to bring down upon their bereaved hearts and bruised spirit the blessings of the Savior and the comfort and the sweet benediction of the Father's peace. Our hearts are still stunned and numb. So quickly did it happen. So swiftly did his little spirit return to the God who gave it. It seems that just as he, just as he was only running on swift and eager and impetuous feet to go to his Savior's call. And then he tells the circumstances of the little boy's death. 
the women servants had made a large tub of boiling water in preparation for the week's washing. Johnny came in during their absence, and while someone had gone to fetch the clothes, somehow he must have tripped, and he fell headlong into the scalding water. He sucked in a large quantity of it, and so his death must have been free from suffering and almost instantly. The cook found him not more than two minutes later. His mother was the last person to see him alive only a few minutes before. As you know, Gay, that is Aunt Gay, whom we knew, is small and delicately made, but there resides in her body a courage that is invincible, a faith and a love and a trust that is wonderful and amazing to those of us who know and love her. I knew when I looked into her face this morning that she was not thinking of the tragedy which had come into her life, but she was thinking, it is well with the lad. She knows that little Johnny is forever in the arms of Jesus. Gay is the one the rest of us go to when our own hearts are broken. The light of faith glows so brightly in her soul that she sees clearly what seems dark as night to us. I went over there this morning thinking I would comfort her. I came away feeling that Gay had already been with Jesus and that I had been given a vision of a beautiful soul shining through her eyes. The fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death, that is, that we die to sin in order that Christ may live in us. And that's what true conversion is all about. Maybe I can sum it up in just a few words. We want to know Christ. You can't know him apart from the power of his life changing your ambitions. Have your ambitions changed since you met him? What's the most important thing in your life? Who really has the final word at the bottom line? Is it your ambition or is it his glory? Are you willing to suffer with him? Are you willing to die to self? Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. And yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.